0: Thank uh, Pastor James for the opportunity to come and um, give you the Word of God this morning. We are delighted um, in the opportunity to, as well, minister to our leaders. All of you should have received the prayer list. If you didn't get one of these, just lift your hand real quick. I should have a few ushers in the back who will make sure that you get one if you didn't get one. So just raise your hand real quick. Just keep it up. Until someone gets to you, they've got plenty of these prayer lists. But this is the most important tool that I can give you in obeying First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. That says, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all Godness and reverence. For this is good. And acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, we especially need to pray for their salvation. You know, that's a threefold emphasis on God delighting to see men saved, making it actually the strongest commission of the entire New Testament, but telling us we're to pray, especially for our leaders. So, if you look at the list here, You'll notice we have all three branches of government, both state and national, so and divided into 31 days so you can pray for them all once a month. So it's just a wonderful tool in that way. Also, I have folded it for you so you can use it as a bookmark in your Bible. As you read through your Bible, just pull out the list and remember our leaders in prayer. That's vitally important. So, I hope everyone's gotten one now. I am going to refer to this, by the way, later on in the sermon. So keep it handy. I'm going to have you write on it a little later on. So um, make sure you've got that prayer list handy. Also, on the back table and down in the bottom right-hand corner of your prayer list, you'll see Pray 1 Tim 2. And that's just another tool to pray for our leaders. You can sign up at Pray 1 Tim 2. And it'll just send you a few every day to pray for. You can send them an email. Let them know you're praying for them. Just a wonderful tool to, again, obey 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Well, for the last 20 years, we have ministered uh, right in our state capital, the Word of God, and it's been truly a privilege. And we've seen several of our leaders come to Christ. We're excited and thankful uh, but we have the Bible study notes as well back there on the table, and you can feel free to pick up some of that, uh, those materials uh, there on the back table. Also, every year on the eve of the elections, we have the Capitol Cookout and Prayer Walk that we do on the Monday, just before the Tuesday elections, every year. So feel free to pick up one of those flyers as well on the back table. Uh, we're excited to have Delegate Wendell Walker with us this year. Uh, we're just very, very thankful for him. What a godly legislator that comes faithfully to our Bible studies. Also, another resource is a United States prayer map that gives you the governors of each of the states, give you the population of the states, the percentage of believers within the state. It's actually very informative. Uh, so another wonderful resource to remember our leaders in prayer. And also a world prayer map to remember the president's Of all the countries of the world. Again, all these uh, prayer lists are divided into 31 days, so you pray for everyone once a month. So those are some wonderful resources, even a children's prayer map. So feel free to stop by the table. Also, I've written a book, um, so you can stop by the table, pick up that resource as well. If you'd like to partner with us in the ministry, feel free to sign up there uh, on the back table. But I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. You know, here in Virginia, we are in a state most well-known for its history. Of course, it was Virginia that followed Massachusetts and Connecticut in the first great awakening that occurred in our country. Of course, you know that that awakening began with Jonathan Edwards as he proclaimed the truth. But Most importantly, that Great Awakening began with prayer. It's fascinating. One person, one person, one girl, one teenage girl, began to pray. God spread that prayer. It continued and brought on the first great awakening, begun with prayer. It's fascinating. Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots, one of the greatest persecutors of the church, said of John Knox, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. How astounding. A.T. Pearson reminds us of the importance of prayer. He says, from the day of Pentecost, there has not been one great spiritual awakening in any land that has not begun with a union of prayer. So what is our responsibility to our government? What does God teach us in this regard? Well, I have three points. And we're going to look at all of Scripture, particularly strategically, in regard to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Well, we'll see from the Old Testament, the preaching of the prophets. And then secondly, the most important prophet, the ministry of the Messiah. And then thirdly, the clarity of the commissions. You know, he gave us some very, very clear commissions in the New Testament. So if you consider all of the prophets from John the Baptist all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, from Abraham to John the Baptist, you have the prophets both praying for and proclaiming the truth to the leaders of their day, and almost all of those are kings. You begin with Abraham, the king of Sodom, Joseph to Pharaoh, Moses to Pharaoh, Aaron to Pharaoh, but the strongest emphasis is actually when you have the first prophet and the first king in the land of Israel. And the first prophet is introducing the king on his coronation day. And as it were, he has his arm around him. He's introducing him to the people. And he says these incredible words. In 1 Samuel 12, 23 and 24, he says, But God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth. For consider what great things he has done for you. You realize what God had done for Saul? Saul wasn't nobody. Samuel had just anointed him as king over all of Israel. And he tells him, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. This sin of omission to cease to pray for you. I wonder how often we cease to pray for those whom we need to be praying for the most. Those who are leaders, those who are kings. It's fascinating as you continue on, you find that the prophets continued to go to the kings throughout the Old Testament. David to King Saul, Gad, and Nathan to King David, Ahijah to Jeroboam, Jehu to Basha, all these are kings, Elijah to Ahab, Haziel, Jehu, Obadiah to Ahab, Micaiah to Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, Elisha to Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, king of Edom, Naaman, Haziel, Jehu, Joash, Joel to the leaders of Israel. You say, but what about us? Is there any emphasis on the Gentiles us and their leaders well it's beautiful you actually have at the hand of an unwilling prophet Jonah going to a foreign city he doesn't even want to go he runs the opposite direction but finally when he does go an amazing thing occurs the greatest revival in the history of the world, far outnumbering, by the way, the day of Pentecost with three thousand. There are literally, the Bible says, a hundred and twenty thousand who don't know their right hand from their left. So if there's a hundred and twenty thousand who don't know their right hand from their left, there must be at least six hundred thousand people in this great city, this great capital of the empire of the world of that day. And they all turn to the God of the Bible. Do you remember who repented first? It was the king. The king repented first. So, the greatest revival, listen carefully, the greatest revival in the history of the world begins with the king. This is essential, this is important. That we remember our leaders in prayer. Of course as well. Jonah goes to Amaziah and Jeroboam. Amos to Uzziah and Jeroboam. Both kings in Israel. Hosea to King Jeroboam. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. All kings. I find this fascinating. Isaiah not only goes to Hezekiah. But Isaiah foresaw the coming of the Messiah. You remember he gives the beautiful passage of Isaiah 53 and looks into the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and in that way, he as well sees us down through the quarters of history. This is in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. He says, Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. We see this strategy continue. Micah as well goes to Hezekiah, Nahum to the king of Assyria. Zephaniah to Josiah, the princes, the prophets, the priests in Jerusalem. Jeremiah to Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. Habakkuk as well makes reverence to leaders and you say, but wait a minute, what about the world empires? Was Nebuchadnezzar a believer? This is amazing. Because the prayers of Daniel, even Nebuchadnezzar, that great head of gold of the first world empire, comes to a saving knowledge of the guide of the Bible, and he writes a whole chapter to let us know in Daniel chapter 4. You say, well, what about the emperors that followed? You know, Daniel was a great man of prayer. I believe that Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, all who followed, as well, as well may have been believers because they decreed a curse on anyone who hindered the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and even paid for the temple's construction out of their own money. You find that in Ezra 6, 8 through 14. As well, Ezekiel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua the high priest, Zachariah to Joshua the high priest, Malachi to the priests of Israel, John the Baptist, and we're now in the New Testament, to Herod Antipas. And so we find our responsibility to our government, first of all, modeled in the preaching of the prophets. But second of all, in the ministry of the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Messiah. You know, Jesus Christ won the political leaders of his day. He won not only the political leader of his own city of ministry, but also the religious leader, as well as a business leader, a very wealthy business leader there in Capernaum. And you say, well, I'm not sure I remember all of that. Who was the political leader of the city of Capernaum? Well, you remember there was a centurion who was over the entire city. His servant was very, very sick. He expected him to die. And he asked Christ to come and heal him. And then he says these incredible words which show that his trust was in the word of God even more than the physical presence of God in Jesus Christ. And he says, he sends a group to Christ and he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man of authority. I say to this one, go and he goes. I say to this one, come and he comes. He understood God's authority and he said just speak the word. That's all you need to do. You remember what Christ said of him? Christ said, "I've not seen such great faith no not in Israel." He had greater faith than anyone in all of Israel. You say greater faith than John the Baptist? One of the greatest prophets? The one Jesus said was the greatest? Yes. Not seeing such great faith, no not in Israel. Greater faith in Mary? Yes. Isn't this amazing? And he's the political leader of Christ's city of ministry. The centurion as well. He won the religious leader after he wins the business leader. You remember Matthew is at the gate collecting taxes. And he just tells Matthew to follow him. And Matthew follows him. But you remember he has a dinner for all the tax collectors and sinners. And Christ is there and all the Pharisees are saying, how, they're whispering to the disciples, how is it that your master eats with publicans and sinners? How is that possible? And they're all talking about it. Do you remember Jarius, the ruler of the synagogue? His daughter is on the verge of death. She actually dies while he's making this request of Jesus. But he comes in and stops the dinner. He literally prostrates himself before Christ and asks Christ to come and heal his daughter. And Christ stops the feast. He gets up and leaves to heal this daughter of the... Of the um, of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Absolutely amazing. He actually ends up raising her from the dead. She died in between. He raises her from the dead. But again, winning the political leader, the religious leader, the business leader of his own city of ministry. But there's only one city that we know of that Jesus wept over. Do you remember what that city was? It was his capital, Jerusalem. He only wept over one city. And through the raising of Lazarus from the dead near Jerusalem, many of the Jews believed on him as well as many of the rulers. By the way, this reminds me of the importance of believing. You know, there may be some here today who have never believed, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never turned from your sin and to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ invites you with those beautiful words. He says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Later on, Paul will tell us exactly how to receive Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 13. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, this is Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all those who call upon him. And then he gives this incredible promise that you can take God at his word this morning. He said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, you can receive him as your Lord this morning if you've never done that. If you've never trusted him, if you've never believed, I invite you to do that first prayer and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. But even at Christ's death, the centurion that had authority over his crucifixion, you remember, he believes. And even following his death, you have two wealthy leaders burying him, both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. By the way, Nicodemus, if you look at John chapter 3, he's referred to as the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, he's the number one guy. And later he shows, he takes a stand. Jesus Christ. So we've seen our responsibility to our government in the preaching of the prophets, the ministry of the Messiah. And by the way, both of these have primarily been descriptive. But now we're going to see the prescriptive where Christ tells us exactly what he wants us to do through commands, through commissions, through exhortations. And so we have the clarity of the commissions. I find it fascinating, on the very first day of the apostles' training. You tend to remember the first day of school a little bit more than the days that follow. So the very first day of their training, Christ told them, and it's fascinating because he's sending them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he tells them in Matthew ten eighteen, he says, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. The nations. Absolutely amazing. This is the very first day of their training. We see it continue. He ends his ministry by telling them the same thing in Mark 13, 9 and 10. And then the very Passion Week, he tells them the same thing again in Luke twenty one twelve. But you remember after he died... And he rose from the dead. He was here, coming and going, as it were, for 40 days. Do you know that in those 40 days, he only had one appointment. He told them to meet him on a mountain. And when they met on the mountain, Jesus gives the great commission. And he says in Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given unto me, and on earth. Go, therefore, disciple all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I find this fascinating. He says disciple. Gets translated as make disciples, but he's actually the verb, disciple. And then direct object, all the nations. Now when we think of nations, we're like, Wow, that's a huge group of people. But when we think of discipleship, we think of singular individuals. And we say, now, wait a minute. How in the world do we disciple a whole nation? And that's where the strategy is. Disciple, he said, all the nations. Well, discipleship has to be one-on-one. That's discipleship. So it's got to be speaking of the leaders. Disciple all the nations. How do you disciple a nation? You disciple their leaders. And then they disciple and they disciple. You see how it goes down? This is the strategy. I find it fascinating. They were told no less than four times they were to stay in Jerusalem, the capital. The last time, is Acts 1-8. We also call that the Great Commission. I call it the Capital Commission because it's all about capitals. He says, But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me. Where? In Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem in regard to all of Israel? It's the capital. Judea, the region around the capital. Samaria, the next closest capital. And to the end of the earth. You say, well, what is the end of the earth? What does that stand for? Well, since Acts 1-8 is the outline for the entire book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves, where is Paul at the end of the book of Acts? Well, he's in Rome, the imperial capital. That must be the end of the earth. Rome. Literally the capital commission. You continue. You ask, you know, did... Did the disciples understand this? Did they get this? Well, we know in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the history book of the church. It shows us exactly what happened in the church. And in the book of Acts, you actually have three people primarily who are spoken of in the book of Acts. They are, it's real easy. All their names begin with a P. Peter, Philip, and Paul. Real easy. Those are the three main players. In the book of Acts, the evangelism begins with Peter. You remember? 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. That mushrooms later to 5,000 men. Absolutely incredible. But do you remember the next thrust of evangelism? It's actually Philip going to the next closest capital, Samaria. They have a tremendous revival. Peter and John follow him up there. And then all of a sudden, Philip gets yanked by the Holy Spirit all the way down into a desert place on a road, seems like going nowhere. You say, hey, wait a minute, that's not a capital. That's true. Did you notice who Philip was witnessing to? The Ethiopian eunuch who is next to Candace the queen and ruler over all of her treasury. This is the most important guy from Ethiopia. And he wins him to Christ and baptizes him and sends him on his way. I find it fascinating. You find Philip then ending up in Caesarea, the Roman capital, over the entire region. You find him there at the end of his life, later on when Paul's coming through. Absolutely amazing. And of course, there's one leader that is more zealous than any others. This one presided over the stoning of Stephen. In fact, once he stones Stephen, he realizes he has a green light. And he realizes the Sanhedrin isn't going to stop this murder. And he realizes that the Romans are going to look the other way and nobody's going to care. And what does he do? He starts persecuting the church like never before. Incredible persecution upon the church. Both men and women, the Bible says, Calvin says of him, there is mention made of women that it may better appear how desirous he was to shed blood, who had no respect of sex, whom even armed enemies are wont to spare in heat of war. Therefore he setteth forth before us a fierce and cruel beast, who had not only liberty given him to rage, but also his power increase to devour and destroy godly men as if a madman had put a sword in his hand. There's a description of Saul before he comes to Christ. And he's murdering Christians as strong as he can. In fact, he's even willing to go 130 miles north out of Israel, leave the country, and persecute Christians in Damascus. But I find it fascinating that Jesus Christ, in answer to the dying prayer of the first martyr of the church, Jesus Christ arrested the arrester. Suddenly, he is blinded. He's knocked to the ground. And suddenly, he believes. He doesn't really have a choice. Suddenly, he believes. He's led by the hand into Damascus, blind. He's blind for three days as he prays. Ananias is sent to him, and I want you to turn with me to this passage, because this is a vital passage that we often miss. This is Acts chapter 9. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, please. Acts chapter 9. Here is Ananias sent to him to tell him his commission. So we've already seen Matthew 28. We've seen Acts 1.8. Now we're going to see the commission of Saul immense unbelievable persecutor of the church and now he's saved look at his commission this one often gets missed ananias said to him verse 15 of acts chapter 9 the lord said to him go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before gentiles kings and the children of israel did you notice that Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, but specifically kings, the leaders. Well, let me ask you a question. Where is he going to find those three groups of people? What kind of city? Well, you say any city if it's Jews and Gentiles, right? But where is he going to find the king? Only in a capital. So if you study the cities of Paul, this is fascinating. To study the cities he goes to. Of course, he begins in Damascus, a provincial capital. He then goes to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. He then is sent to Tarsus, his hometown, the capital of Cilicia. Later on, Barnabas comes and gets him to help ask him to help in ministry. And there in Antioch, the capital of as well the Um, Syria there he begins to proclaim the truth and train pastors it's amazing he trains other pastors and it's also interesting that the entire church is first called Christians at Antioch it's absolutely essential by the way you have those who hated each other Jews and Gentiles and now they've got to be one in the church the only way that these two people who formerly hate each other are going to be one is for them to focus singularly on Jesus Christ. This is why they're first called Christians in Antioch. But Paul and Barnabas trained them. And it's amazing. After he's trained these other pastors, you would think that God would send these other pastors and Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas would stay. That's not what happens. God takes the pastors, Saul and Barnabas, and tells them that they're to go evangelize, to begin the first mission trip. Of course, they do. They head to the most strategic island in the Mediterranean first. They head to Cyprus, the shipping hub of the entire Mediterranean, the world of that day. And so they go to Salmos, the provincial capital there on the east side of Cyprus. It's fascinating. Nothing happens. You say, well, are they going to go to this island that is the center of the Mediterranean and nothing happened and they're not going to be a lighthouse to the nations? I mean, this is why they came to Cyprus. Well, nothing happens. They go through the entire island. Nothing happens. Then they get to the capital, Paphos, the capital of Cyprus. An amazing thing occurs. A Jew actually introduces them to the king. Saul then begins to witness to the king. And then this Jew actually opposes Saul as he's witnessing to the king. Well, he gets really bold, and he blinds the guy. And by the way, there's actually a mercy in that. Do you remember that Paul, Saul, was blinded on the road to Damascus? There's a mercy in this. He he wants to see him come to Christ. But he demonstrates incredible power, and suddenly the proconsul, the king over the entire island, is astonished and believes. Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I want to see your hand if you've ever known anyone to change their name in the middle of a mission trip. Anybody ever changed their name in the middle of a mission trip? You know that's what happened to Saul. Saul changed his name in the middle of a mission trip. He's on the island of Cyprus, the most strategic island in the Mediterranean. Finally, he's won a king. Now think about it. He was commissioned to go to Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. He's already won Jews and Gentiles. Now he wins his first king, and he takes the name of that king and carries it with him for the rest of his life. It is at this point that he becomes Paul, after Sergius Paulus. Absolutely amazing. He changes the name in the middle of his mission trip. What is more astounding is Barnabas then makes him the leader of the mission team. Of course, John Mark, his relative, is not very excited about that and actually leaves in the next city. Deserts the team. They're in Perga, the capital of Pamphylia, where they go next. And they go to Pisidia Antioch, the capital of southern Galatia. By the way, the first recorded sermon of Paul is right there. It seems like almost half the city comes to Christ. He repeats it again. By the way, he has to flee from that city because it gets, the persecution gets so strong. He goes to Iconium, the capital city of Lyconia. And again, it seems that about half the city comes to Christ. It says the city was divided, so he flees to Lystra and Derby. Lystra, by the way, is the capital of a Roman colony. Derby, by the way, is the, um, it's not a capital, but it's the strongest, it has four cities that are right around it, so it's the metropolitan area, even stronger than the capital. But you remember, he actually gets stoned in Lystra. And God raises him from the dead in answer to the prayers of God's people. And he walks right back in that city, and he keeps on going. Absolutely amazing. Goes back through those initial cities of ministry, back to Jerusalem. Reports on what God has been doing. Comes back through those churches. And then it's kind of fascinating because he wants to go to Asia and Bithynia. And the Lord stops him. And doesn't let him go. And instead, he's to go to Troas. Well, that's fascinating. Troas is such an important city. There's actually three emperors who wanted to make Troas the imperial capital of the entire empire. That's Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Constantine all wanted to make Troas the capital of the empire. But do you know who is in Troas? Troas. This most important person who gives us the history book of the Bible. His name is Luke. And he picks up Luke and Luke is added to the mission team in Troas. And then they go to Philippi and Luke becomes the first pastor of the first church in Europe. He leaves him there in Philippi. And by the way, Philippi is not a capital, but it is fascinating that the scriptures say that it was the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. Macedonia. What I find amazing as I study the city of Philippi is that all the wars of the empire are fought right outside the gates of Philippi. And I said, now, why would they all fight over Philippi? It's, it's this, this one city. And it's not even located next to the ocean. It's not that big. What's going on with Philippi? Well, there's a gold mine outside of Philippi with 10,000 talents of gold coming out of that gold mine. And if you have Philippi, you can fund all the soldiers of the empire. If you don't have Philippi, you don't have the empire. It's that simple. And so he went to Philippi, the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. He as well goes to Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. There are a number of the leading women uh, come to Christ It's fascinating. Their husbands evidently get saved later on. Sopater, Secundus, and Gaius, who are from that city, are later on Paul's mission team, and they're leaders of that city. As well, he goes to Berea, a provincial capital. It's amazing what happens in Berea. Did you know that Berea is the only city of Paul's ministry where the entire synagogue repents? It says they compared with the scriptures. And the entire synagogue repents. It's the only place where the synagogue turns immediately into a church. And all of Paul's ministry is there in Berea. As well, he goes to Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, and of course the capital of Greece. There he wins Dionysus, the Arapagite, one of the top guys of the world. He goes to Corinth, the capital of Achaia, Ephesus, As well, the capital of proconsular Asia, back to Jerusalem, the first capital, Caesarea. I find it fascinating, even after he's incarcerated, he's a prisoner. And he still goes to capitals and start churches in them. Syracuse, the capital of Sicily. Regium, the capital of the Italian province of Magagracia. And then, of course, he has his triumphal entry into Rome, the imperial capital over all the capitals absolutely amazing. So if you count up all the cities of Paul, there's 22 cities. All of them are capitals except just a few. You say, Paul fulfilled his commission. He went to Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. He won leaders. But what about us? Did he pass on his commission to us, the church? Well, that's 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. through He said, I exhort, therefore, first of all, Listen, this is vitally important because this is the final commission of the New Testament. I exhort, therefore, first of all, he makes it a first priority with the greatest emphasis on prayer in all of Scripture. And he says, I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Remember, he was given Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. Now he passes on his commission to us, the church— by doubly emphasizing leaders, kings and all who are in authority, and puts Jews and Gentiles into all men. Does Paul want us to get it? Does God want us to get this? Yes. He doubly emphasizes leaders and says, don't leave one out, all who are in authority, so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior who have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This, by the way, is the strongest climactic commission of the New Testament with a threefold emphasis on God desiring to see men saved, and we walk right past it and don't even see it as a commission. How do we miss it? We get Matthew 28. We get Acts 1-8. How do we miss this one? I think when we think commission, we think go. And this one says pray pray but do we pray the final climactic commission of the new testament is the strongest emphasis on prayer in all scripture the question is do we pray do we pray will we pray i want you to get out the prayer list you know the bible also tells us in galatians 6 10 To do good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith. So if we're to pray for all who are in authority, and especially those of the household of faith, then we need to pray for our pastor. So I've given you in day number one. You see the little block right there? Day number one, top left-hand corner. Just take a pen out and write your pastor's name in. Pastor James. Let's put his name in there. And by the way, don't just remember him on the first day of the month. Remember him every day as you pick up the prayer list. He's the one who cares for your soul. Isn't it important to remember him in prayer? And every day, to remember your pastor in prayer? It's vitally important. So put your pastor's name on the prayer list and remember him in prayer. I find it fascinating. When something's important to Paul, he's going to bookend. He's going to put it at the front and the back. Well, 1 Timothy, he gives... That final climactic commission, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. At the back end, he gives 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 13, where Timothy is told to confess the good confession as Jesus Christ confessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. The last person Jesus witnessed to before he died was the king who ordered his own execution. And Paul says, there's your example of boldness. There's your example of boldness, Timothy. But it's our example of boldness, too. Hey, listen, isn't it easy to witness to the person below you? And isn't it more difficult to witness to the person beside you? But how much boldness does it take to witness to the guy above you? That's what we're talking about. He confessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Will you be willing to witness to the, pray for and witness to the guy even above you, your boss? That's the kind of boldness Jesus Christ had. I find it fascinating. Just a couple of verses later, for the first time in all of Scripture, Jesus Christ is presented as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How much more will he be King of Kings and Lord of Lords as we pray for our leaders? as we do all that we can to witness to them and to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I close with three questions. First of all, will you make prayer first priority? This is what we're told to do in the final climactic commission of the New Testament. To pray, particularly for kings and all who are in authority. Will you pray? And will you not just pray personally, but will you pray as a church? You know, that's talking about public prayer in the church. Verse 8 makes it clear by close reference. But then as well, it's made clear in 3, 315 of 1 Timothy. Paul is saying, I write unto you that you might know how you're to conduct yourself in the house of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So all of 1 Timothy is about church conduct. This is what we do in church. So will you Pray especially for your leaders. And will you witness, not only to the person beside you and the person below you, but even that person that is above you. Will you pray for and witness to those? And then finally, if you've never believed, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to do that this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use it to speak to each one of our hearts. Oh, Father, strengthen us in prayer. Just as the disciples, there was only one thing they requested. Lord, teach us to pray. Oh, Father, may you this morning teach us to pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus or if you would like to pray with someone or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.